Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Guys, we got Adam fucking Green on the show today. So Adam is a guy who needs no introduction. He's the man behind Holliston, Frozen, Spiral, Digging Up the Marrow, and of course, the beloved Hatchet series. Adam is a household name in the annals of horror history and a downright awesome human being. I'm sure you already listened to his podcast, The Movie Crypt, but if you don't, I highly recommend that you do. Okay, so this episode is really amazing, and uh, it was clear to me in the beginning that this is one of the best episodes we've ever done. Adam slayed this interview and went above and beyond by completely over-delivering on the advice front. He's brutally honest about this industry and tells a bunch of wonderful and insightful stories about how he got started, how he pushed through hard times as a director, and a particularly wonderful anecdote about D. Snyder. This episode is a little longer than most, but I promise you'll walk away smiling, inspired, and very informed. I loved this interview. It's one of the ones that I will listen to very regularly. So without further ado, here is the incredible Adam Green, everyone. Adam Green, so great to be speaking with you. I uh, I really cannot thank you enough for doing this. I am a tremendous fan and uh, just wanted to start by saying thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Nick. Um, you know, normally, as I think I had said to you, I, I typically don't do any interviews or anything unless it's time to be promoting something new. Yeah. Mainly just because I have my own podcast every week and it's hard enough to do that. But after a year of quarantine and I don't know, it just was like, you know what, actually, it would be nice to talk about the craft again uh, instead of uh, interviewing someone else about the craft. So <laughs> the timing was just great. So uh, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to this. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad we were able to uh, make this happen when we did. So looking back, I mean, when you first burst onto the scene, you were kind of grouped along the lines of what they called the splat pack, you know, filmmakers who brought back gore and, and splatter people like Eli Roth and Neil Marshall and Rob Zombie. And I'm curious, I mean, having, having, um, Coming up on 15 years after after Hatchet, what are your thoughts on the current state of of gore centric horror? Because it feels like it's kind of taking a little bit of a backseat nowadays. We're not seeing as much. There's it's kind of the age of elevated horror in the way, which I you know don't get me wrong, totally enjoy. But I feel like from what I'm seeing, only people like Damian Leone are are really putting forward serious amounts of gore, and it just it feels like a different time period for gore. I mean, I'm curious as to what are your thoughts on that. Well, I think. Uh you know, what we've really been seeing, like you said, it's a lot of the more elevated horror right now, um, which I don't really know if, if I love that term. Yeah. But I mean, we do have uh, a new Darren Bowsman directed Saw movie coming very soon, which is exciting. And hopefully we'll get some of the red stuff in that. Oh, yeah. But it, you know, it, it ebbs and flows. And even at the time when I was going out with the script for Hatchet, one of the main reasons, well, two reasons why every studio and bigger production company, well, really everyone passed on it was that they would say first slashers are dead. And then they would say it's too difficult to market horror and comedy. Hmm. So you need to pick one, either remove how violent this movie is like take the violence out or take the comedy out. And I was like, 
that's exactly why this movie works. And slashers aren't dead. We just haven't had a one that's caught on. And yeah. um, thankfully, we made it independently and it struck a chord with a few million people around the world who felt like I did. But I just missed the fun. You know, like at the time, it was torture porn or remakes. Right. That was it. And and I it, look, there's room for all of it. And like, I, I love that we live in a world where movies like a Serbian film and human centipede can exist. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very worried these days that people are going to be too afraid to put out movies like that. And we can't have that happen. It should all exist. It's not the type of stuff that I would make or mm -hmm. that I gravitate towards, but I still love that it's there. And so, um, my thing has always just been, for the most part, is just to make things fun and to entertain people because that's why I got into this. I want to make people happy. And, uh, you know, there's movies like Spiral or Frozen that are much more serious mm -hmm. and there's really no comedy in them at all for the most part. But when it comes to Hatchet, I think as soon as you're talking about blood shooting 40 feet in the air and... A, an undead swamp monster with a gas powered belt sander. I'm laughing. Like it's, <laughs> it's fun. You know, I keep the comedy away from the Victor Crowley character. Mm -hmm. I think that's a mistake that we've seen other slashers kind of, it's a, it's just a rabbit hole. You don't want to fall down Yeah, because when your character becomes the joke, then, you know, where do you go from there? Yeah. So, uh, Kane, always says which i i really appreciate is he's like even the other actors who are you know seeing how the sausage is made who have done these movies before they're still scared of victor crowley on set terrified mm. of them and that makes all the difference i think and if if victor crowley was making jokes i don't think we would have gotten as far as we've gotten i mean four movies already and you know, more to come. So yeah. Uh, but I think there will always be room for gore. And right now though, in this very moment, it's just really tricky because everybody is scared to do anything. Right. And, um, it, but you know, this too shall pass. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel I've, I've heard from a few other people that the balance and the, to, to try to introduce a mathematical formula to horror is you know a little masturbatory but for the, the, the proper balance when you balance horror and comedy because the two work really well together is 80 percent scary 20 percent funny but i feel like in your case it just it worked so beautifully because the characters took it seriously and clearly kane hodder took it really seriously and it seems like that is the key to balancing it because when when the actors don't take it seriously then the audience will not you know yeah i think i think that the balance lies in the situation, uh, no matter how absurd, the situation needs to remain scary. Mm -hmm. And your villain needs to be scary. And the, the consequences of crossing that villain need to remain scary. But if the characters themselves are just inherently enjoyable to watch, I think that's that's what sets Hatchet apart from other, other slashers like it. And that, um, you know, when you watch the old 80s slashers, which... I'm sure you grew up watching just like oh, yeah. I did and just loved them. And, but we loved the villains. We loved Michael Myers. We loved Jason. We loved yeah. Freddie, the looks of them, the mythologies of them. Like they were just 
awesome. But when you watch those movies again now, and, and even then, you were really just sort of waiting to see the villain again. You wanted to get to the next kill. There wasn't much interesting about the other characters. Right. You knew that they were, it was, you know, 10 little Indians. They were setting them up to knock them down and you're just waiting to see them die. So I tried uh, to use, cause I mean, I come from the comedy world was just to just make characters that people were having fun with. And then you almost forget like, Oh, that's right. They're all going to die in really brutal ways, but at least getting to that next point but you know, I do understand where distributors were coming from. That it's very, very hard to market because you have what a minute and a half, maybe two and a half minutes to yeah. make a trailer. And when you have comedy in your horror movie trailer, it confuses mm. a general audience. They don't understand. Wait, is this is this a spoof? And, uh, and when you look at the original trailer for Hatchet, there's no comedy in that whatsoever. And I think when the movie first came out, that threw a lot of people off because it had been a, a year and a half of festivals and mm -hmm. magazines writing about it and the the effect sequences and you know how gory it was and just a lot of praise for the Victor Crowley character, which was amazing. But then when I so I think people had like an idea in their head for what it was going to be. And then when it was funny, it it threw some people off. It's just mm -hmm. not what they thought it was going to be. And, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll never understand that. The people who are like, I hate laughing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> why is this fucking funny? Like, right. um, but, you know, uh, there, how do you put that in a trailer and, and sell what it is? So the trailer for the original was really just about Victor Crowley. It was just mm -hmm. selling the mythology of the character. And especially when you had reviews saying this is the next icon of horror or, you know, we were so fortunate yeah. to get that kind of response. I think that how, how anchor Bay tried to position it was, you know, this, here's your new villain. Right. And, um, and that's the other thing too. You can't tell us the, as fans who our new villain is like, we yeah. decide that not you. So, um, that was a lot of pressure when I saw the poster for the first time and they put that, that review front and center, the next icon of horror. Oh, I was man. like, Oh shit. Like <laughs> now I have to make sequels just to prove I'm right, not right. wrong. But you I think it'd be the greatest that. thing to hear, but at the same time that puts so much pressure on you. It's terrifying, terrifying, wonderful and terrifying. Right. Right. So would love to dive into your overall origin story as a director. I feel like the hardest part for a lot of would-be directors is getting started, you know, kind of breaking through, getting into the industry. And uh, if you're not sick to death of talking about it, would love to just kind of trace your origin story as a director, how you kind of came through the ranks. And, and also just kind of through the lens of the making of Hatchet. I know that you had a movie before that, Coffee and Donuts. But would just love to hear how you essentially made it because I think there's a lot of filmmakers listening, and uh, I think they'd really love to know, you know, how you were able to uh, become the director that you are today. Um, well, I mean, it it all it all started when I was really really young, and I realized that this was what I wanted to do. Um, I was a fan of movies, like like everybody was. I loved Star Wars and all those things. But it was when I saw E.T. that I really started to become fascinated with writing, with directing, um, just the whole process. Because 
it was the first movie that I ever got to see twice in a theater. Mm-hmm. We didn't have much money growing up. And so we were lucky if we could go to the movies twice each summer, like once at the beginning of the summer and once at the end. And back then, you know, movies stayed in theaters for months. So uh, we saw E.T. at the beginning of, of the summer, I believe. And then at the end of the summer, my mom was like, well, now what do you want to see? And I'm like, I want to see that again. She's like, but you already saw that one. Pick something else. I'm like, no, I need to see it again. And I couldn't comprehend in my little young eight-year-old mind how I was crying at the end of the movie when I knew it was fake yeah. and E.T. didn't even look real. But yet the music, the everything, like just, I was just fascinated by, you know, how how is Steven Spielberg doing this to me and right. manipulating me like this? And I just wanted to know all about it. And then seeing Goonies a couple summers later, and it was the first time that the kids spoke like I spoke and like my friends spoke. It didn't feel like an adult's interpretation of how they think yeah. kids speak. And so I really became fascinated with Chris Columbus and his writing. And all those elements sort of set me on my path. But even playing with toys, uh, I was very strict to stick to the characters that were established in the movies with my Star Wars toys. Like sometimes I'd be playing with a friend and all of a sudden they have Chewbacca shooting at Princess Leia or, and I would have to stop and be like, wait, 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 no. Like, what are you doing? That's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm just pretending. I'm like, well, stop. Like, that's not what happens. Um, and playing outside with my friends and keeping people in character and even just wherever I would stand and look at things, it was always kind of through the the mind of a, a camera playing with my toys i'd position them and and hold my head a certain way so that i was looking at the shot and mm. i don't even think i realized that that's what i was doing right but it was it was just always sort of there yeah and uh something that i'm sure many people will be able to relate to is when i would start asking questions about it and can i do this for a career can i be steven spielberg can i do what he does um the answer was usually no, like right. that's, that's not going to happen. Like as a hobby, wonderful, but what are you really going to do? And that always just bothered me so bad. And um, I remember when you start meeting with the guidance counselor, when you're I think a sophomore and they start saying like, you know, you got to start thinking about college and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, I want to be a filmmaker. And they were like, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, where but where are you going to go to school like what what's your what's your career going to be right and i i was so angry about that like don't tell me i can't but now i'm grateful cuz i think the best way to get me to do something is to tell me i can't do oh, it yeah. or i'm not good enough or i'm not welcome and then um well i guess we'll get to that but the other thing that was very instrumental which fans of mine know was was twisted sister mm-hmm. and um you know again same same age when i discovered twisted sister and the message in that music and again it wasn't enough to just listen to the records i needed to know the story and like who are these guys yeah why do they dress like this where did they come from and when you learn that they were around for over a decade and just could not get signed because no one believed in them, but they never gave up. And that really inspired me. And, and D Snyder's lyrics about 
being who you want to be and not letting people tell you what to do or that you're not good enough. Uh, it, in an era where everything in music was about sex, drugs, and rock and roll and you know beautiful women and mm -hmm. partying, and then you had this like diamond in the rough that was inspiring people to take on the world and stand up to people telling you no. It's not like I had this tough life growing up either. I had a wonderful family. I, I'm one of the few people who enjoyed high school. Like mm -hmm. I had a great group of friends. I was very lucky. But whenever it came time for what I wanted to do with my life and people would tell me no, uh, I had those those records to, to kind of lean on. And awesome. I went to, to college and I got a Bachelor of Science degree in TV and film production at Hofstra University. And, um, you know, whenever people say, should I go to film school? My answer is always, if you have the means to go, then absolutely go. But if you don't, then don't worry about it and don't think you have to go. Um, there's so many examples of people who became incredibly successful at this or even just successful enough to make it their career mm -hmm. who didn't go to film school or, or college at all. So, uh, I do recommend going if you can, because the sad truth is that this is not going to work out for most people who want to do it. It's just not, it's, I, I wish I could say, no, no, no. If you just stick with it, it will happen. It, it probably won't, but be the one that it does happen for just simply by not giving up and being able to take the beatings yeah. that Hollywood's going to give you and keep getting back up again that right there puts you in a tiny little percentage of people who at least stand a chance because mm -hmm. most will quit or that they won't be good enough or they'll fail or, you know, they'll keep coming up with excuses. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing I don't have the patience for is when people come to me and they say, you know, I've been trying to do this for however many years and I'm not making any progress. And then they have an excuse for everything. Um, yeah you know, do better, be better and, and make something that people can't deny and they'll deny it anyway. Uh, <laughs> believe me when hatchet was done, my own agents passed on repping the sale of the movie. Whoa. They didn't get it. They were just like, we don't even want to be the ones to sell this. And they said it wouldn't make it into any big festivals. And it got into Tribeca, which, you know, Tribeca might not be Sundance or can, but it's, still a big festival oh, yeah. and uh and then everything went wrong dude everything but uh, sorry i'm getting off topic no here. no not at all this is all this is all great but my 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 first job right out of school was making really bad low budget cable commercials so like when you're watching espn or mtv late at night and you see that local ad come on it usually ends with the family standing in front of the store waving. Yep. There's graphics everywhere. They always have been in business and family owned and operated for 40 years. They have a friendly and knowledgeable staff, you know, <laughs> that. <laughs> and it was better than film school, what I learned really? doing that. Yeah, because it, what they don't teach you in film school is how to deal with people. They don't teach you how to deal with the client, which... Yeah whether it's the guy who owns the pizza place or the carpet store or the executive at Universal, mm -hmm. they're all going to tell you how to do your job, even though they can't do it and never have done it. 
and it's all very similar. So, uh, like this miniature golf place in Salem, Massachusetts, that was one of the only places that let me do my thing because they were on their last leg. This was like a hail Mary to try to stay in business. Mm -hmm. And I was like, please just let me, let me do what I do. Don't just show your prices or our families playing mini golf and high fiving each other. And the guy trusted me. And I made this ad where it was like two sports announcers just taking miniature golf way too seriously and <laughs> like commenting on the, the plays that the kids were making and they're like sweating and like, they're just so into it. And it was really silly, but everyone remembered it. Right. And within three summers they had expanded and now there were like three of these places. And Whoa. like, and I would hear from the guy every few years, you know, telling me how successful they were. And that ad was still running for the longest time, which was great to hear. But normally you would try that and say, when you watch TV and you see a national commercial, they don't show their storefront or their kids right. or the kid's hamster, you know, they, and you try to explain <laughs> it and they just, no, 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 no. I've been making pizzas for 30 years. Right. Let me tell you. And that's exactly what the studio system is. Mm. So, um, so it, it taught me a lot. And the main reason I took that job was that back then, and we're talking 1997 when I graduated college, access to equipment was the biggest problem. And it's like, well, how, how can I shoot a movie if I don't have any equipment and you don't have money to rent it? And what do you do? And so at Time Warner, I had a, <laughs> I had access to a beta cam, beta cam SP, which well. is not exactly film, but it was better than VHS yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and three lights. They had an airy kit with three lights in it and editing equipment, but it was still editing tape to tape. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was like, if I, if I can have access to this equipment, I can make my own things on the weekends and at least make a short film. And it, you know, it's not ideal, but it's something. Yeah. And I just was always, I was very good at always making the most of things and being grateful for what I had as little as it might've been. It, it meant the world to me. And my boss thankfully was very cool about it. At first he was aware that every weekend I was taking that camera out and um, he just sort of looked the other way. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those situations where if it became an issue, he would have to basically pretend he didn't know I had been doing that and fire me. Right. And I made a short film called Columbus day weekend. Cause that was the only holiday. There wasn't a horror movie for yet. And it's still on my website on airyscope.com. And I leave all the old stuff up there because I think it's inspiring for other people to see oh, yeah. where, where this came from and that it's very similar to what, what they're probably making right now. Um, I understand when my representation over the years would say things like, maybe don't leave this amateur shit up for people to see, <sighs> just, just show the good stuff. Mm -hmm. But why? Like, um, I, and I don't get it when people try to act like they came out of the gate, uh, totally pro, right. like, you know, like no, no one does. So let people see, yeah, man, I was there too. Like Columbus day weekend is awful but people like it for some reason and it's what got me an agent ultimately mm -hmm. and um but back then so few people so many fewer people were making short films now everyone can shoot with 
you know, I know people hate hearing this, but on your phone, right. Or there's consumer grade cameras that are really good if you know what you're doing. And uh, you do still need to know what you're doing just because you own an iPhone, you're not a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, I made a short film and I had heard the story of other shorts that started getting like passed around. Cause again, the internet existed, but streaming video was not very, it wasn't really a thing. Yeah. And back then you pass things around on VHS tapes. And so I started sending and I made Columbus day weekend to show at a Halloween party. All it was, was dialogue lifted from other horror movies like uh night of the living dead and Friday mm -hmm. the 13th and, and just purposely really silly and dumb. And it was Jason and Michael Myers stalking the same campsite by mistake. And then they fall in love with each other. Like it was so <laughs> dumb, but it was just to show at a Halloween party to my friends. And that was it. And then when it got a good re response and people were laughing, I started making VHS copies and I started mailing them not to studios, not to agencies, but to Ozzy Osbourne and Lita Ford. Because <laughs> when you looked in the on the inside of the record or the CD, it had a fan club mailing address. Oh, nice. It was the only address I could find for anybody that I cared about. And so... <laughs> I'm, my point is I did not do things right. Like I didn't know. And, but then all of a sudden one day I get an email from a guy who's like, I work at, if I'm going to tell the story correctly, he's like, I work at UDA and all these agents were just in the conference room laughing at a short film. And I saw, uh, he recognized one of the actors in it. And he's like, and I saw your name. He's like, we went to high school together. Oh, wow. I'm an assistant here. Um, what, what else do you have? Uh, and I was like, I, 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 I holy shit. What, what the hell's Uda first of all? And he's like, can you come out and meet? And I was like, yeah. And now to fly to California from Boston, I had never been on a plane that long. It was expensive. I had to save up to do it. I mean, I was so broke. And once I got here, I realized that it's called UTA, not UDA, and it's United <laughs> Town Agency. For months, I was telling everyone, I'm going out to meet with UDA, and everyone's like, the fuck is UDA? And, uh, and so by the time I got here, no one cared. And I don't even know if they necessarily would have signed me off of that anyway. It really wasn't very good. But at least I got noticed. You know, mm -hmm. somebody paid attention, and they thought I was funny. And so he said, uh, can you make a feature? And I said, what is that? And he said, it's what you did, but longer. I'm like, yeah, I could do that. And in my head, I'm like, how the fuck am I going to do that? <laughs> and so I ended up making Coffee and Donuts, which I just basically kind of wrote my life story. Um, not like my life is so interesting, but it was just about somebody with a dream who's struggling. And uh, I think I changed it from wanting to be a filmmaker to wanting to be a radio DJ um, because that was just something else I did back then. And, and I didn't know what I was doing. So I, I shot a 170 page romantic comedy and I shot the whole thing Whoa. edited tape to tape. So once you made an edit, that's it. You can't go back and change anything about it. And, uh, eventually I, after getting enough notes, I cut it down to 92 minutes from two hours and 25. <laughs> and, um, 
and again, VHS screeners, and I submitted it to the first film festival that was coming up, not realizing I should probably wait and go for bigger ones. I didn't know. So I submitted to the Smoky Mountain Film Festival, which right. I don't even know if it exists anymore. Um, but I'd heard of the Smoky Mountains, so it <laughs> must be cool. And then next thing you know, they're calling and asking for the print. Now, the way we did Coffee and Donuts was we shot on Beta SP, but when we edited, uh, and my DP that I've been working with for 22 years now, Will Barrett, he figured out that in the control deck that we were editing to, if he took a Phillips head screwdriver and jammed it in the time-based generator, <laughs> then it would make it stutter. So it just looks like it was strobed. And then we would do a half-mixed dissolve over itself so that it looked like 24 frames per second instead of 30. Whoa. This was before film looks and stuff had been invented right. for that stuff. And it, when you're screening on VHS, people bought it. They, they didn't know what it was. It's like a big comment we would get is, it doesn't look like film, but I don't know what this is. Hmm. And um, so the Smoky Mountain Film Festival said, you're accepted in the feature film category. Can you send the print? And I wrote back, what's a print? <laughs> and they said, the move, the film. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's broken. Can I send a VHS? And they were like, Whoa. we really prefer not to screen VHS to a giant theater, but all right. And I sent the VHS. I didn't go to the festival. I didn't expect to hear anything. And then we won Best Picture. Whoa. And, um, and again, I should have waited. I should have submitted to bigger places, but I did I didn't know. So I just went to the first one that was that I saw. And UTA ended up signing me and I moved to California. So I was 25 when I moved out here. And I expected something to happen, you know, and a lot of empty promises, tons of meetings, mm -hmm. a lot of oh we'd love to work with you because no one was going to distribute coffee and donuts because there were copyright infringements in every frame, the, the music, the, and it wasn't even like it was music. I could now change. Like I'm literally singing an Aerosmith song in the movie. Like I didn't, again, I didn't know. Right. And so the important thing though, is that it became my calling card and eventually coffee and donuts became Holliston, the TV show. Right. So that was really the first thing was I sold coffee and donuts as a TV series. Uh, and it's what you see today is Holliston. It was called coffee and donuts. I sold it. This is so cool. Tom Shadiak was the producer and I sold it to Disney touchstone as the studio and UPN was the network. So a, a major network mm -hmm. with the, he was just coming off Bruce almighty. Like, I mean, wow. I had everything going for this. I, it was so amazing. And then the very week that I turned in the final draft, there was a merger and UPN and the WB became the CW. And all development was thrown out and they held the rights for five years. I couldn't touch it. Oof. So that was my first lesson in the most unexpected thing that is beyond your control is going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, coffee and donuts, not getting shot had nothing to do with my script or anything. It had nothing. There was nothing anybody could do to change that. So, uh, 
I, in the meantime, I was always making shorts. I was still writing and I was working as a DJ at the rainbow bar and grill on the sunset strip, which is the big heavy metal hangout. Mm-hmm. And I could eat leftover food out of the trash at the end of the night. And, uh, and I got $50 and <laughs> that was it. And usually if I could work twice a week, I'd get a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote hatchet, which was called Victor Crowley back then in the DJ booth. And it was based on an idea I had had at summer camp when I was eight, same year that I saw ET yep. and found twisted sister. So, uh, it all was sort of coming together and, uh, still making short films every Halloween. And then, uh, while I was waiting to get the rights back to my life, hatchet was made. And, you know, again, like I said, everyone passed on the script, but then my friend, Sarah Albert, who had just produced the behind the scenes documentaries. Do you remember there was that Friday the 13th mini box set? It was parts one through eight. And it had all like these shitty covers for the films. And they all formed and, together to see like a big Jason on the side. I don't know. Oh, wow. Did it do that? I, I never knew so. that. I, it may, I might be confusing it with a Nightmare on Elm Street box set. Because there's, yeah, there's one with Freddy with his arms out. I th- was pretty sure there was a Jason one too. This is VHS, I, right? No, no. This, these were DVDs. Oh, this okay. high tech. Okay. Um, <laughs> and she had just like kind of fallen into this job at whatever company was making those and she got assigned you know go interview these people mm-hmm. and she sat down with people like john beekler and tom savini oh, wow. and um and so one day she was over my at my apartment and she said uh what is this because the script for hatchet was literally i think it was yeah it still said victor crowley on the cover page i think uh was on the floor and I said, oh, I wrote this. Everyone passed on it and it's dead. And she said, can I read it? I'm like, if you want. And she read it and she's like, I love this. This is so fun. I just interviewed the people who made the Friday the 13th movies. And I feel like I kind of know something about how to make a movie like this now. So what if we did it? And I'm like, oh, if you got money, then fine. But I don't know anyone with money. And she's, you know, it was really her she was like, well, let's, let's just say we're making it like, let's Mm -hmm. just start. Yeah. And, and a lot of times, you know, that's dangerous to do because in our case it worked out, but if it hadn't, that would have been like a stain on our reputation that we acted like we were making a movie that didn't get made, you know? Mm -hmm. And but again, there was an innocence to all of this. And so the first thing we did is we made a trailer for it and I knew that without money, I couldn't make a trailer that looked like the movie was going to look. And so my idea was to just have a little girl in a minute and a half tell the legend of Victor Crowley. And all I needed was a shot of a, uh, putting the camera off the side of a boat, like right against the water in mm-hmm. a swamp and just have the camera slowly moving through the swamp, this little girl telling the story and that's it. And, uh, that's what we did. So we flew to New Orleans, which back then spending $280 on a flight was a lot of money. And we were now like invested in this thing. Yeah. And uh, we went on a, on an alligator tour and Sarah and I stood in front of Will while he hung off the side of the boat and (laughs) got the shot. And uh, so uh, not including our plane tickets and stuff, that trailer cost about $8. Wow. 
um, Sarah had a friend who had a daughter named Eleanor and she sat with Eleanor and Sarah would read my, my script. She'd read the lines like once upon a time. And the girl would say once upon a time. And um, we put it together and we made a little website. And then next thing I know, this website called Creature Corner reaches out. And I guess they had seen the Halloween shorts. And so that's how they became aware of our site. And then the, here's this trailer that says coming soon. And uh, Ryan Rotten, who now everyone knows is Ryan Turek, yep. reached out and he wanted to know more. And now simultaneously, uh, I met somebody named Corey Neal. Uh, really, I met his wife, who was a mutual friend. And I, I don't even remember how we got talking about it, but she said, my husband is a producer or trying to be one. He's got a partner. They raise money for things. They hadn't ever raised money for anything yet. And she said, they're looking for a horror movie. And I said, well, I have one. And I think that what helped sell the movie was, to an investor was that, I mean, I think the script was pretty good. And they put together a package that showed, you know, a, a budget and a schedule and the best case scenario if this thing works for 1.5 million and then the worst case scenario, if it just goes straight to video mm. and it's just in blockbuster mm -hmm. and we were able to show there wasn't that big of a risk. And I had made coffee and donuts. I had developed a show with Tom Shadiak. I had sold it to UPN at that point off of the strength of the hatchet script. I had been hired by Lionsgate to write cabin fever for two. Oh, wow. So like I wasn't, I wasn't anybody, but I wasn't nobody like mm -hmm. to an investor, at least some. And that's the thing. You just need to show them that someone else has believed in you. Cause, um, and again, we'll, we'll circle back to that because yeah. it's very important. But then after Corey Neal and Scott would meet with people with money at the end of the meeting, they'd say, when you get home tonight, Google Victor Crowley and hatchet and just see what comes up. And all these horror sites were excited about this trailer. And so they could see people wanted this. They wanted a new villain and they were excited and they didn't even know what it was yet. Right. And I think that really helped somebody take a gamble on us. And so we got the 1.5 million and it was not that easy. It wasn't overnight. It was a long time and many times we thought it wasn't really happening mm -hmm. but then it did and we realized we didn't have enough money to do what we really wanted to do nowadays 1.5 is a decent budget for <laughs> for a, a, an indie oh, yeah. movie um but we we did it and we made the movie and i like i said i showed my agents and they passed and they said we represent film festival movies this is not getting into a film festival and slashers are dead and no one's going to want this. So then we got into Tribeca and uh, meanwhile, there's a whole nother side to this story, which I won't tell the whole thing right now because I know we're still in the first question and I've talked <laughs> for 45 minutes. No, please. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to my life. Um, <laughs> but like I mentioned, the twisted sister angle, um, uh, so many points in my life when I was ready to give up, I would randomly end up running into D Snyder from Twisted Sister. What? And I was never stalking him, I swear to God. Yeah. Um, but I, let's see, when I was 
uh, graduating college, my, my final year, I was at Hofstra on Long Island, and I heard that Dee Snyder's new band, Widowmaker, was playing in Providence, Rhode Island. It was $5, I think. And I drove the four hours there, and I handwrote a letter to him saying, when I was eight years old, I got You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, and it changed my life, and now I'm in film school, and I'm going to make this movie someday called Victor Crowley, and... And thank you for all your inspiration and for the positive message that you were putting out when no one else was telling me I could. And I just wanted him to get this letter. I yeah. didn't ask for anything. I didn't want an autograph, nothing. I just wanted to get this letter to him. So I got to the concert early and I pressed myself against the front doors. I was five hours early mm-hmm. and I just wanted to be the first one in because it was general admission. And if I could throw this letter onto the stage, maybe someone would pick it up. And uh, as I'm waiting, and I'm the only one in line, I should point out, um, I was that early. And I see in the reflection, this mop of long blonde hair walk by behind me. Whoa. And I turn around and it's him. And I'm like, oh my God, like I had never met a famous person in my life. And this dude was my my hero. Yeah. And I couldn't even speak. I was shaking. I like, oh my God. And what's great about those experiences is I understand it. And now when I meet someone who gets like that around me at a convention or whatever, like I can put my arms around them. Well, nowadays you can't anymore, I guess. But I mean, I, I used to. Yeah. And just look at them and be like, I know, I know how you feel right now. And it's like, <laughs> isn't this exciting? Isn't it? Cause it's just as exciting for me. Yeah. And, um, and anyway, I handed him the letter. He said he would read it. And when he came out to play, it was like he was just playing for me. Like, I kept high-fiving me, oh pointing at me. And then the middle of the show, you're going to love this story. This is this is an Adam Green staple. Everyone's had to hear this a yeah. million times. And he says, um, we don't do Twisted Sister songs anymore. That was a different time and a different band. And he points at me and he's like, but for you, and they, he, so he goes into, you can't stop rock and roll. He does, oh, wow. we're not going to take it. And then when he does, I want to rock, he leans down into the front and puts the microphone like right in my <laughs> face so I can sing it with him. What? And I'm thinking it's never going to get better than this. Yeah. And then at the end of the show, they put a spotlight on me and he gets choked up and he's like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, tonight, my friend Adam here gave me this letter and somebody really heard what I was trying to say and saw through the makeup and the bullshit and, you know, thank you for this moment. And I'm like, thank you. Wow. And, um, and he dedicates, I'm a wild one to me and, you know, lights come on and he's gone. It's like, it, and, oh and I was God. alone. I was alone because no one would go with me. Mm-hmm. So I'm literally running to a, to pay phones and I'm calling my mom, I'm calling my girlfriend. I'm just like, you're never going to believe this. And, and unfortunately, D. Snyder wasn't famous enough for too many people to care. Yeah. They're like, who, who is it? I'm like, D. Snyder, Twisted <laughs> Sister. They're like, oh, come on, feel the noise. Right? No, that's quiet, right? You fucking idiot. Um, so no one cared. And um, years later, when I was making coffee and donuts, um, uh, oh, sorry, sorry. When I made Columbus Day weekend and I first flew out to meet with Uda um, and no one talked to me. My friend who had reached out and told me to come out, I was there for one night. And he said, is there anywhere you want to see in L.A. since you're here? And I said, yes, I want to see the whiskey and the rainbow and all the metal places. Mm -hmm. And he's like, all right, well, I'm not going there, but I'll drop you off and you can walk around and I'll come get you. I'm like, perfect. So I'm standing across from uh, the whiskey. Yeah. No, sorry. 
I'm, yeah, I'm sitting across from the whiskey and I'm thinking to myself, I just spent all my money to fly out here to meet with people that asked me to come here and then they didn't actually meet with me and fuck this town. It's just like what everyone says about it. Everyone's fake and I'm never coming here again. And then across the street on Tower Records, there's a sign that says tonight at seven, get twisted with D. Snyder signing copies of his movie Strangeland. Oh my and God. What were the fucking chances, right? And so I didn't have enough money to buy a copy of Strangeland. You had to buy the DVD to meet him. I ended up having to put it on two different credit cards just to get to meet him. But I people were really cool to me because I only had an hour and they let me uh, get back cuts and line. The person behind me wasn't very happy, but still. So I get up to him and he's got the sunglasses on and he's just you know signing away. And I said, um, uh, hi, uh, I'm Adam Green. Um, it's, dude, I'm fucking up the story. He had written me a letter after the night we met uh, uh, at the Widowmaker concert. Oh, that's cool. He wrote me a letter thanking me for my letter. It's framed over my desk to this day. And I said, so I'm cool. Adam Green. And he said, he looks at me, he takes the sunglasses off. He goes, what are you doing in LA? I said, oh my God, I made this short film where Jason and Michael Myers are gay. He's like, what? I'm like, I went to meet with Uda, but they were dicks. He's like, who? I'm like, I, and I don't, I, they, everyone told me to go fuck myself and I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go back to Massachusetts. You're going to make something else. And you're going to tell these people to go fuck themselves. I'm like, that's right. And so I go back to Massachusetts. I make coffee and donuts. Okay, now we're all caught up. <laughs> it's, it's, I haven't done an interview in a while. I should know this shit. And um, so, okay, so I, uh, I, I we made Hatchet. It gets into Tribeca, and I told my whole story in the effects shop one day. I told John Beekler and his shop foreman, who back then didn't speak. He was just the creepy guy who stood there and played with cadavers. <laughs> and the creepy guy who stood there and played with cadavers, Rob Pennegraft, who would wind up becoming like my effects guy on everything. Rob Pennegraft is the one who did Mrs. Permatio, the face rip and hatchet one, mm -hmm. the belt sander kill. Like Beekler gets all the, the credit, but it was Pennegraft who did those things, which is why he ended up doing all the sequels. So um, right before I'm about to get on the plane to go to Tribeca, Pennegraft says, there's somebody you should tell about this. And I said, who? And he said, Beekler was working on a project with D. Snyder years ago. I went into his computer and I got D.'s personal email address. I don't know if it still works, but you should tell him what happened and that you made Hatchet and it's premiering at Tribeca. So I write to this weird email address. It was just random like letters and numbers. Mm -hmm. And I stay, I don't know if you remember me, we met here, here, and here. Because there, there was one other time, I'm not going to bore you with it. And um my, I made it. I, the movie happened. It's premiering at Tribeca. And I wanted you to know. Thank you for everything. And he fucking writes me back and says, uh, well, all right, what night is it premiering? I'll be there. And I go to the premiere of Hatchet and I'm watching the carpet and the actors are doing it and everyone's there. And I'm watching acquisitions, people that I had met with years prior, all walking in and I'm terrified and my phone rings and it's d snyder and he said where are you i said i'm uh, uh, i'm at my premiere he said no where i said i'm in the pizza place across the street and he said look outside and this gray limo pulls up and he gets out and walks me down the carpet to my first oh premiere. my god and as soon as people saw him vh1 mtv they're all running over with their cameras 
and he made it about me. And oh he's like, this God. is Adam. This is his night. This is his movie. This is like to an eight-year-old kid with nothing but a twisted sister tape to have that moment. And I thought that was it. Like that's, this is where it all ends. Like, yeah. it, and, and in some ways, if it had ended there, I mean, just so lucky that that's who I picked mm -hmm. to be my hero. Um, and uh, that night when I introduced the movie, instead of naming all these names that no one in the theater knows, you know, I told a much shorter version of the story. <laughs> and I said, so what you're seeing tonight isn't just a slasher movie. You're seeing an eight-year-old kid with nothing but a Twisted Sister tape make all of his dreams come true. Wow. And, and everyone starts clapping. And I said, you'll never guess who showed up tonight. And he stands up and the place just goes nuts. Oh my God. And that was Hatchet's arrival to this world. And everyone walked out and passed on the movie. <laughs> and, um, but what a night. and I couldn't, I could not let it get me down. I didn't care at that point. Yeah. He liked it. The audience loved it, but no offers. And, you know, taking a page out of D's book, I was like, all right, well, the story isn't done yet. And so 18 months of going to every festival that would take it, every horror convention that would have me and going into such debt, like $80,000 in debt by the time that thing came out, like just credit card after credit card. Because, um, and this is the distasteful part for mm -hmm. everybody. No one wants to promote their own movie. Right. I sure as fuck didn't want to do that. But if I didn't do it, who was going to do it? And- um, and I believed in it. In every place that I showed it, the audience responded so insanely well. And Kane won like best actor at Fantastic Fest. We got the Audience Choice Award a couple times. And so, um, yeah, uh, finally we were at our wits end. We didn't have any theatrical offers. And we said, we're going to do one more one more Hail Mary. And we rented the Arclight on Sunset. Mm -hmm. Myself, Will, and one of the producers and we put it on the Aeroscope website free screening of hatchet tonight at seven you know come see it and we invited acquisitions people again mm -hmm. and said we know you saw it at tribeca here's all the reviews here's what's happened over the last year and a half please come see it again look at it again you're not seeing what we see here and um people showed up to see it uh and the line was down sunset and there I think the theater held 400 people and 735 people showed up wow. for the first show. So we had to add a second one. So when acquisitions people came, they couldn't get in. And right there, they now they wanted it Brilliant. because other people wanted it. Right. And so at like 2 a.m. that night, we got the first theatrical offer, which was from the Weinstein Company. And then Anchor Bay, what I loved about Anchor Bay was that Mark Ward, who was there, he called me, not the lawyers, or like he called me personally to tell me why why he wanted the movie so bad, and that it would be Anchor Bay's first theatrical, you know, shot. Mm -hmm. And so I would always rather be with the underdog who needs you yeah. than somebody who's just going to lump you in with everyone else. And and then the rest is history. So sorry that that took so long, but no, that's, no, that's my story. And what what I want people to hear though is that I didn't give up and mm -hmm. that nothing went right. Nothing. And there's so much more that went wrong. Like our DI was fucked up. Our negatives got scratched. Will had to mortgage his house to pay to redo the movie. Like oh my God. everything went wrong. But, and that also please hear this. Like 
D. Snyder didn't make my movie. He didn't make my movie for me. He didn't do anything except inspire me. Yeah. So um, wherever your inspiration is, however weird of a place it might come from, a book, a movie, um, or a cross-dressing two-hit wonder from 1985, wherever it comes from, just hold on to it and make that your inspiration and don't let go of it. And yeah. um, believe me, Twisted Sister in the year 2005 was not the coolest thing in the world. Uh, but to me, they will always be the coolest thing in the world. And um, so please don't have the takeaway of the story be, I need to start writing to celebrities I like on Twitter and Facebook because right. that's what people do when they hear it. Right. That's not it. That's not it. And we, he and I were meant to meet because his side of the story is that the night we met, I couldn't, I only saw the big rock star. He was driving the van. He mm -hmm. was loading in his own equipment. I literally couldn't see that. Right. And um, so the night that he read my letter, he was about to give up. Whoa. And then he, I put his own words back in his face. Oh my and he, God. And then the next time I met him was a concert. He, he was the MC and uh, cause he had just launched his national radio show house of hair and he had just gotten his numbers and they were terrible. And then I'm there. Then at Tower Records, Strangeland was a bomb. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't care. To me, it was the coolest thing ever. Um, so we kept running into each other when we both needed it. Oh, and, my God. And that's what's so serendipitous and special about it. And that's not something you can manufacture. Of course. It's not. Um, so I hope people hear that part of it as well. Because normally what happens is people hear the story and they all start writing to me and, and sending me things. And like, I can't help you. I can't. I can only share my story with you and mm -hmm. tell you that if I can do this, you can do it. You absolutely can do this, no matter what anybody says to you. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's an amazing story. And the fact that it was kind of this, he mentored you, and then you you, you basically retaught the teacher the lessons that he passed on to you. I mean, it's just such a beautiful story. My God. That's amazing. And, and he mentored me without even knowing me. Right. He didn't even know. And so I try to remind myself every week with the podcast or with every movie, every commentary, every appearance, somebody out there who needs to hear this right now is hearing it. Yeah. And even now, someone's listening to your show who might have been on the verge of quitting, especially mm -hmm. after this last year, how brutal this was on everybody. Yeah. Um, don't, don't quit. Not today. Not today. So one thing I've heard from people who have worked with you is that your sets are a lot are very enjoyable and a lot of fun. And I'm really curious about the the delicate balance you're able to achieve when doing that, because, I mean, particularly on Hatchet One, the, the, the production was plagued with a lot of problems, just like, you know, in most cases of independent filmmaking. But I feel like you as a director of independent movies. You, there's a lot that you, you ask. You have to ask a lot of your actors and a lot of your production crew. And yeah, there's some tyrannical directors who people hate working with who bark orders of people. And it's just a nightmare. But there's also um, there's also directors who can inspire people to push through the difficulties. I mean, you were shooting in swamps and people were probably getting wet and cold. And I'm sure it was very grueling. And I'm sure late nights and, you know, like that. So I'm curious how you're able to create a, a set environment where people can push through the difficult elements of, uh, of, of a demanding shoot like yours and how you're able to kind of balance that. Uh, it all starts with the people that uh, like, and I say this all the time, like as the director, I'm, I'm leading everybody 
to make the same movie and mm -hmm. get on the same page. And uh, a good director is able to pull the best out of everybody on that set because I don't care whether you're the lead actor or you're a PA, you didn't, you got into this because you wanted to make movies. You wanted to tell stories. Yeah. And too often people get treated like they're the position they happen to be in at that moment in life. And to me, everyone on that set is a storyteller and they all have great ideas and we're all making this movie together. Mm -hmm. And so now you got to be careful. I think there's a, there's a balance to that that I must have figured out along the way because I'd made so many shorts and it wasn't like it was my first rodeo. Yeah. Even though in many ways it, it was my first real rodeo. Um, and people caught the fever and and we just treat people really, really well. And um, no shoot has been easy. Uh, Hatchet One was probably the easiest of the four Hatchet movies. I didn't know that then. I thought it was hard. Mm -hmm. um, I would do anything <laughs> to go back to that because most of that movie was shot in a parking lot. And we weren't in a real swamp at all on the first one other than some b-roll with stand-ins down mm -hmm. in new orleans um whenever you see the boat like in a wide shot moving through the swamp you'll notice the actors are all looking the other way because it's not <laughs> them um but uh there's moments where the actors are running and if you freeze frame you can see the pots that the plants are in like um yet everyone believed it was a swamp because the production designer brian mcbrien was so good at what he did mm -hmm. and he had never production designed a movie before he was a greensman but i knew this is a greens movie mm -hmm. so give somebody a chance who's gonna be out for blood and show what they can do so uh that's my first piece of advice yeah um especially when you don't have a lot of money give somebody the chance they've been waiting for where to them this is so important to them as opposed to the person who's like look i'll do you this favor but uh, you know i do bigger things i get paid more i right. like um because eventually they're gonna they're gonna want to keep reminding you how much they usually get paid right right like you don't need that um and we just have a good time um like i said my goal in life was just to make people happy and that includes the people i work with and uh and there's a warning that comes with this, of course, but I've always worked with my friends. That's why I started Aeriscope. And I know, and I've, I hear it all the time. There's people that are frustrated because they're like, well, how do you get in there? Like, that's all I want to do is work at Aeriscope. How do I get a job there? How do I get on one of these movies? And there's loyalty there. There's people that have worked with me for years. Yeah, The job is theirs. And, you know, unless every now and then something happens where someone can't come play that time and so um, something opens up but but we try to hire people based on personality and uh our main camera operator on hatchet one bj mcdonald did not have the credits that a lot of the other camera operators that were submitted had but when he came in for his meeting i think he was wearing an evil dead two shirt uh we loved all the same bands and he was just an awesome guy. And it was like him, like mm -hmm. he's the guy to shoot this movie. And he's one of the best camera operators in the business. Um, now he's like the guy that everyone goes to. And you know, with the third hatchet, I promoted him to director. So, uh, but I didn't know him from a hole in the wall when he first walked into the office. Yeah. So, um, but that's really, I think where it starts. It's just, it's good people. And remembering that you're making a movie. 
Mm-hmm. And I think people lose sight of that because it is really stressful. There's a ton of pressure. There's money writing on these things. Someone trusted you. Uh, when it's a studio thing, they make you feel like you're going to get fired every day. Um, it's hard. It's really, really hard. Uh, everyone else on that set usually wants your job and thinks they could do it better than you. Mm-hmm. They're very good at being nice to you to your face, but the second you turn around, that's how they bond with each other. Is mm. uh, you know these fucking producers or this director? How? Why is this guy doing it? Right. You know, um, we we've had very little of that on our sets, and um, and we I make time for the fun. Um, unfortunately, though, I don't I don't think hatchet three was fun at all and um four four was fun but you know we did four in 11 days how do you make a movie in 11 days you can't i don't know how we did it and um and that's unfortunately i came up at a time when the floor of the industry was falling out Mm -hmm. and home video is gone physical media is gone everything is streaming and on one hand how awesome that more people than ever see the things that we make now. Yeah. It's, it's incredible, but there's no more money in it and trying to make a living at this now when the budget is so horrible and uh, you know, you want, at least in my case, I want every dime that can go on the screen to go on the screen. Um, I'll figure it out and find a way to feed myself somehow, but the movie is going to live forever. And so I'm, I would always make the mistake when it was like, look, if you want to get paid fairly, we can do that. And you can, we can give you low budget, minimum experimental new media, whatever they come up with to get it as low as possible. Mm-hmm. Or you can have an extra day of shooting. So what do you want to do? And I always go with the extra day of shooting. Yeah. Like, and then I'm homeless by the time these things end. And um, which is why I'm never that anxious when people are like, when are you going to do another hatchet movie? Like I have to go do other stuff to be able to afford to do this. Although yeah. this is probably too much behind the curtain, but um, hatchet is worth so much more now than it ever was because of how long it's been around. And now mm. there's four of them and there's action figures and Halloween masks and comic books. So uh, I don't have to necessarily keep making them with the same financial partners mm-hmm. um and you got to see it from their point of view why would they invest more when they already know what i can pull it off for yeah so they don't care if the crew gets paid fairly or the actors can make a living or they just want the product so um so it's tough and and i'm grateful to all the way back to anchor bay uh my friends at dark sky who made the other three you know without them believing these wouldn't exist so i'm very grateful for it but when we make more, it can't be like what we went through on that last one. It just, it can't, no one will, no one will do it. Yeah. So, um, so we will, uh, find a different way when we're ready. Oh, and that's the other really important thing is when the first one was a success, the easiest thing for me to do would have been to just do the sequel, Mm -hmm. but I waited five years and I did spiral. I produced grace and I made frozen. And then I did the sequel because I I don't I'm I don't want to be the hatchet guy right. forever. Like I love being the hatchet guy, but I also am the Holliston guy and the frozen guy and mm-hmm. the guy who does the stuff you haven't even seen yet. Like so I didn't want to get stuck. Yeah. And um we only make these movies when we're ready to make them and that makes a huge difference because you can feel the the love behind them when you watch them. We're it's never 
we never let it become an assembly line of products. It's mm-hmm. always been a big deal to us when we make one and the fans, fans can see through, you know, commerce oh, from yeah. a mile away. They know the second they, the movie starts when it was like, fuck, like no cash one crap. cared about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So believe me, these movies are anything but cash crafts. <laughs> um, and they're, they're made out of love. And sometimes you need to walk away from something to love it again. And then you come back to it really excited like you were that first time. And so far for four of them, that's the way it's been. And, um, uh, and I'm very grateful to the fans who go out of their way to support these things instead of stealing them. Because, I mean, that's the quickest way to end something you love is yeah. stealing it. And it is a problem, believe me. And that's why the budgets are so small. Oh man. The, uh, the horror audience is one of the, um, some of the biggest fans of internet piracy out there. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's a phrase in the industry where they call it the black t-shirt crowd. (laughs) <laughs> where they're like, they don't like to spend a lot of money on things for the black t-shirt crowd because the black t-shirt crowd, they'll buy the action figure, they'll pay for autographs, but when it comes to the the thing itself, mm-hmm. they'll wait for Netflix or Hulu or whatever streaming thing, Shutter, or they will find it elsewhere. Um, but with the Hatchet Army, they're very big on the physical media. They love having the actual Blu-rays in their hands. Mm-hmm. They love bringing them to the conventions and having everyone sign them and um and then god the last tour that i did people drove from six eight hours away just to be there in the theater to see it the right way and that's it's incredible when you look out yeah um so very very lucky and just the fans are incredible and not everybody has that so i'm so lucky so so lucky that's so cool yeah, I mean, that's every director's dream is to have a legion of fans that are that loyal. And who knows if it all would have gone this way if if at Tribeca we had gotten a huge theatrical offer with a big marketing push behind it. Mm-hmm. I mean, b- believe me, I would take that any day. But the fact that I had to go convention to convention and festival to festival for a year and a half mm-hmm. meeting everybody, um, that was where that fan base started. And, uh, you know, things always happen for a reason. Sure. And I think there's people who probably saw what I was doing and hopefully felt like they can do this too. And, um, it's look, it's hard. It's really hard, but, but you, you can do it. Yeah. It sounds like a lot throughout the course of your career, you had a number of pivotal mentors. I know Kane Hodder to a certain degree, you know, was a mentor and also just like a, and other people I've spoken to said him being on set, it's like having a big brother on set. Cause he's been on so many movies and he just kind of helps stabilize the set and just kind of, you know, keeps that energy up and keeps the work ethic up. And it just sounds like he's an amazing person to just have around. You know, um, I would say, He's actually the one derailing the set most of the time with his pranks <laughs> and his, um, I mean, he and I are both little kids, so we have to be yeah. separated sometimes because otherwise it'll become all about how can we fuck with this person or that person. Right, right. Um, but uh, again, I think timing is everything. When I met him, he was at his lowest and mm-hmm. um, I wasn't necessarily even 
thinking about actually offering Victor Crowley to him. Hmm. Um, and John Beekler was the one who suggested it. And he's like, what about Kane Hodder? And I was like, well, of, of course, but why would he do this at this point? Like, why do it? And the producers were like, we don't want somebody who was in something that this is no matter what is going to get directly compared to. Now you're really making it directly comparable. Um, because the, and the thing is like the real horror fans don't ever say that they never say like, Oh, it's just like, cause the movies that I ripped off, if we're going to be honest, were American werewolf and fright night. Mm -hmm. Like there's full shots taken from American werewolf, but those were funny movies where they took, you know, werewolves, vampires, and then had funny scripts and mm -hmm. funny characters go through these horrific situations. That's what I was doing. But people see trees and Kane Hodder and they go, well, it's Friday the 13th. Right. It's really not. Like, aside from the unstoppable killer, like, yeah, and it's a slasher movie. Absolutely. We do all those tropes. But the tone of it, the feel of it, it's completely different. And, um, and Kane saw that for sure. Uh, but yeah, when the producers, when I said, what about Kane? They were like, we would rather go with somebody young and somebody new, like what, why? And I'm like, but he's Kane, he's the right. greatest. And, um, I think for Kane, he really saw an opportunity and seized it because he had just recently lost the role of Jason when they made Freddie versus Jason, which right. all of us still can't get a straight answer right. out of anybody for why. Um, and his mother had just passed away right before we started. Like he was really at a crossroads and, uh, and he, like he says all the time, he thought, okay, well, I guess that was it. Like that was my thing. And now, you know, I'll do the conventions and, you know, stunt coordinate. But then I show up with this thing and I'm like, this would be your character from the ground up. No one else is going to play this. It's yeah. you. And, and I think offering him the role of Thomas Crowley and getting to play a part out of makeup and show what he can do oh, yeah. changed the entire trajectory of his career. And he, he works more now than he ever did. And he, he's played so many amazing characters, not in prosthetics and makeup and mm -hmm. people see what a good actor he is. So, um, so it all kind of worked out, you know, and, um, uh, I do feel safer when he's around, which is a weird thing to say that like the guy who's murdered more people on camera than any <laughs> other actor in history. <laughs> but when we did frozen and this goes back to the whole Ariescope family aspect. Yeah. Um, I was really scared about making frozen because so much could go wrong and that we were really going to be on the side of a mountain. Mm -hmm. The actors are going to be 50 feet in the air the stunts in that movie, like just climbing out on that cable. I mean, if the guy falls, he's dead. Like there's no, um, there's no faking it. Yeah. And, uh, and I really wanted Kane there, but there are so many amazing stunt coordinators in Utah. So the production was like, it doesn't make sense to bring in Kane. Like, and without telling me, Kane called one of the producers and said, listen, I will fly myself there. I will put myself up and work as a local. Wow. I mean, he basically lost money.
by doing that movie, but he did it for me. He did it for the family. What a guy. And what a match. Yeah, we all felt better knowing he was there. So when one of the actors is about to try to you know stand on the back of the chair or whatever it might be, and I look at him and he nods and says, it's safe. I know it's safe. Yeah. And there's this misconception that if that chair had fallen, somehow he would dive in and catch them or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, so no matter what, it's just he's part of the family. So it's always great that he's, that he's there in some capacity. Um, and, you know, and again, he's just one of, of many that, that make this thing work. It's, it's not me. I'm just, I'm just at the, 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 the wheel, but yeah. it's, it's the whole team. That's so cool. You like, you guys are lucky to have each other. I mean, that's, he's like the uh, De Niro to your Scorsese. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a respect thing. And as uh, cheesy as it sounds, it's just, it's just a lot of, love it's yeah. a it's a very happy place to work and it's very real and i've always described it as like my my little island in this mm-hmm. town because um i don't want to ever sound too negative about the industry in hollywood but it it wasn't for me then and it doesn't it's not really for me now mm-hmm. um so uh and this again is more advice for people maybe feel that same way um make your own sandbox and and then invite in the good people that you want to be with and if a bad one gets in somehow that's the hard part because you got to get them out yeah because a bad egg can spoil the entire set doesn't matter how great the other people are the negativity thing is so toxic and sadly there's so much of that in this industry because people become bitter and jaded and um so you gotta you gotta recognize that when you see it and and get rid of it immediately. I feel like that's an enormous piece of advice because I think a lot of people are scared away the minute they experience any negativity. But curating the people that you work with, I think, is a huge part of making this a sustainable career path for people. So thank you for sharing yeah. that. That's enormous. Yeah, and I think you know it's not just the director, it's the producers, mm-hmm. it's the lead actors, but anyone sort of at the top of that call sheet. It's your job to protect everybody else from that. So you can't just look the other way and say, well, I'm worrying about this. Like, that's not my job. It is your job. So, so stop it when you see it happening. We've had very little of that. Hatchet three was plagued with some, some issues. Uh, Basically the long story short on that one. And I really mean this will be short um, is that we had some amazing people lined up and then something happened and we had to push and shoot later and Django moved in and took all the best people out of new Orleans, like Mm. just like gone. And so we just ended up with people who were really angry. They couldn't get on Django and who, you know, cause they're basically doing the same job Mm -hmm. except on Django, they would have been getting paid 10 times as much. And, um, but also to any crew people that listen to this, when you accept the job, that's it. It's done. You accepted it. You don't need to keep saying what you usually make. Mm-hmm. You don't need to keep like, it's not going to change it. It's just going to make everyone hate you. Yeah. Um, because uh, I get paid more on other things too. I don't care. So uh, if you're going to take the job, take the job, do a good job, finish the job. Don't quit. We had a lot of that. Um, if Django was down, 
you know, an electric. Literally, at one point, an AD could walk over to our set and be oh, like, God. I need an, a grip and an electric. People would be like, I'm out. Oh, you know? Jesus. Because a lot of people, they do just do this for the money. Right. They don't care about the movie you're making. So, um, so yeah, uh, if you accept something, once you've accepted it and you're doing it, that's it. Do it. Yeah. So last few questions here. Mentorship has been really important to you. It sounds like Eli Roth was a formidable mentor for you. There's a few other people in the industry that you had relationships with, including George Romero. Could you talk about the role of mentorship in developing you as a director and how you were able to get these mentors? Because I feel like it's a missing piece for a lot of directors is to have a mentor to talk to. Eli was a mentor uh, in some ways to Paul Sollett, who directed Grace, which I produced. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I think I always like really respected what Eli did um, with Cabin Fever and the fact that he came from the same area I came from. Oh, that's right. He was from Newton and I was from Holliston. And, you know, that was great. So I get, you know what? I guess in some ways you could say that because, mm -hmm. like, even D. Snyder being a mentor, we never, he never worked with me on things, but right. just by him doing what he did inspired me. So I guess you could say Eli was an inspiration in that way. Yeah. Um, but uh, but Paul actually like knew Eli like he, Eli was his camp counselor when they were kids. Whoa, yeah. So um, so they were they were uh, really close. Um, and Eli's always been super cool. Uh, but but yeah, I think um, I think that's sort of probably a good way to put it though. Uh, is that it's it's where you find the inspiration. Um, I never had anybody necessarily like take me under their wing and show me how to do stuff. Yeah. I did a lot of uh, PA jobs and um, I learned how to show run for television because I was the assistant to other showrunners. Uh, Diane Wilk, who was the showrunner of The Nanny for years, she was doing a pilot once or actually twice that she did pilots where I was her assistant. So I got to really see that process up close, which was so crucial for training me to be able to show run Holliston. Um, and one of those shows was with Ryan Murphy. He was wow. doing a multi-camera sitcom called Horrid Little Girls, which I think they ended up changing to St. Sass. And then it ended up not getting even picked up. Hmm. But he went on to do Nip Tuck right after that. And um, but I got to watch him work, you know, and it was it was huge. And he was so wonderful and just amazing. I mean, that dude is just incredible. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it's just, I've always been paying attention and I've always been finding the good in everything. Um, Cause it's very easy, especially when you're doing the assistant jobs or the PA jobs to, of course, you're going to see things that you don't want to do, or you're going to see mistakes being made or how shitty things can be. That's always there, but don't worry about that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Now forget about that and focus on the good thing that you can find the good people you're going to meet. Ask people their stories. Everyone from the electrician to the craft service person will be more than happy to share their story with you if you just ask. Mm -hmm. And um, and know the timing too. Like don't don't always be hitting them up at the most inconvenient time with questions that don't pertain to the job at hand. Right. Um, but make yourself accessible. Uh, our interns that we have here, I usually tell them, you know, one of you can be my assistant on set for whatever movie we're about to make. But I recommend that you be a PA because then you're going to work with every department and you're going to meet and get to know everybody. You already know me. You're here every day with me. Yeah. You'll be here through all of post. 
So I know you think you're thinking about that title and you're like, I want to be the director's assistant, but you kind of already are. So, um, you know, I, I won't discourage them, but if you can be a PA, you end up learning so much and you end up working with everybody at one point. So I guess that's really it. Um, mm -hmm. but there is no way to really apply for a mentorship. Um, we have internships here, but usually our interns end up staying forever. Yeah. So it's very rare that we have an opening. Um, and, but when we do, uh, we post about it and it's posted on the website. I mentioned it on the podcast and we interview people. And uh, one thing we learned early on is that I can't be the one who hires people because I want to hire everybody. <laughs> and so the rest of the team will usually step in and help me with that. Yeah. Cause I'm very big on um, empathy. I'm a very empathetic person and it's one of my biggest flaws. So, <laughs> uh, so, but I, I was able to learn that and recognize it and do something about it. So, um, and I guess, sorry, this is all over the place, but that's no, another no, no. piece of advice. Know, know what your flaws are and do something about it. Mm. Like that, that might not sound like, Oh, is that really a flaw? It is. Yeah. When you're so empathetic that you're making decisions that are negatively affecting everyone because I felt bad for someone else or I didn't want to let them go because mm -hmm. I felt bad. You, it, if you're going to be in charge, you have to be ready to sometimes not be liked. And it sucks. Who doesn't yeah. want to be liked? Like I fucking hate if somebody feels bad because of news I had to tell them or something. I hate that. That's the worst thing in the world. Oh, yeah. Um, but sometimes you got, I mean, it depends how you do it too, mm -hmm. obviously, but yeah, um, there's that. And there was something else. Uh, I don't remember what now, but I'm sure it'll come back to me in an <laughs> 80 minute answer to some question. Sorry. I'll be ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So a few a uh, few quick questions um, before Spielberg does a movie. There's four movies that he watches every single time. I think I can remember them: um, Seven Samurai, The Searchers, Lawrence of Arabia, and It's a Wonderful Life. And it just kind of grounds him in what he loves about cinema. Do you have any sort of ritual either for watching specific movies, either once a year or quarterly, or as you're approaching a movie? Because I feel like it's just as a horror director, it's so important to just kind of reground yourself and recalibrate with the stuff that you love and are passionate about. Are there are any, you know, handpicked favorites that you regularly rewatch for the sake of just kind of reimmersing yourself in what you're the most passionate about? That's such a good question. Um, well, one ritual that I have is before before production begins on any movie. Usually, mm -hmm. it's like maybe two nights before the first day of shooting. Is I take the cast to the movies. And it doesn't matter what we see necessarily. It's just that we all sit together and watch the trailers mm. and all the logos and that we have that, that communal experience in a theater and that we're reminded that we love this and how magical it is and that that's what we're about to set out to do together. Mm. Um, uh, so like before the fourth hatchet, I think we went to see don't breathe because oh, that's, nice. that's what was playing. Um, and we saw before frozen, we went to see Coraline because that's what was playing. Mm -hmm. you know? And so you might be thinking, well, what does that movie have to do? It doesn't matter. Yeah. It was just that we, that we sat together in the dark without speaking and felt that. And it, it just, there's like a, a bond that happens from it for me personally. Usually I will watch movies that 
inspired the script that I wrote or um, that are kind of similar to what I'm making. Like for Frozen, I remember watching Lifeboat a lot and Jaws and um, uh, I'm trying to think what else I watched for that one. Um, but the my go-tos might not make a lot of sense because they're not like the movies that I make. But mm-hmm. E.T., obviously, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and then the other two are <laughs> Love Actually. It's a great one. I'm not a rom-com fan, but that one is amazing. The storytelling is perfect in that movie. It's perfect. And it's just like, that's the, I think the mother of all romantic comedies. For sure. uh, I don't even really consider it a comedy. It's just, it gets dark at moments. That's what I love about it. Yeah. It's not, if it was an American production, everything would have worked out for everybody and everybody's lives would have been better because of the journey. But in some cases, love doesn't work out. No, no. And um, I haven't been able to watch that one in a few years now because it uh, just the place I'm at. But um, and it's not like, okay, I'm about to make a new Hatch movie. Got to watch Love Actually. But that is one that I usually reach for to remind myself uh, how to remind myself of what good filmmaking looks like. Yeah. Um, And then um, Pan's Labyrinth. uh, There's a connection with hatchet and pan's labyrinth that is um so we, we premiered at tribeca nothing happened and then we got into fright fest in the uk and so it was my first time out of the country it was my first time in london i was nervous i was scared i didn't know anybody i'm by myself and uh the opening night movies where pan's labyrinth was like the big festival opener and then hatchet right after it and I had heard about Pan's Labyrinth from Cannes and like the mm-hmm. 20 minute standing ovation. And so I was very intimidated, but I also couldn't believe I was going to be in the same theater as Guillermo del Toro. And they give me my seat and I was seated next to Edgar Wright. Whoa. And so I'm like freaking out. And he was so normal and nice. And somehow he already knew who maybe they had told him, uh-huh. Oh, the guy who directed hatchet's going to be sitting next to you or something like that. But he just starts talking to me like I'm a filmmaker. And I'm like, he's treating me like I'm a filmmaker. I'm not mm. a filmmaker. Edgar is a filmmaker. I'm right. just an idiot. Like I don't. And, um, and so after pan's labyrinth, which blew me the fuck away, like that movie, it just, it's so amazing. Oh, and yeah. every time I see it, it gets better and better. And um, halfway through the film, Edgar leaned over to me and he goes, you've got to follow this. Mm. And I just was like, you asshole. I was so sick. Like, (laughs) I can't believe this. And um, they're doing the Q&A and Guillermo's talk. He's telling a story about how a fawn used to visit him at night when he was a kid. And Mm -hmm. that's where the idea came from. And then Alan Jones, who runs the festival, is like, Oh, I'm sorry. We're out of time. Uh, round of applause for Guillermo del Toro. Uh, now we're going to bring up Adam Green from America with Hatchet. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and um, all I said, because normally I have you know a speech, something prepared. Yeah. And all I really said was, my movie is not as good as that one. And everyone <laughs> laughed. And I said, but mine has tits in it. And people cheered. And I sat down and that was it. And um, and that audience is so great because they appreciate when things aren't like, you know, they're ready to switch gears yeah. after a movie like Pants Labyrinth. They were ready for something like Hatchet. 
Um, so yeah, uh, I owe a lot to that festival and I've been there like 10 times. I go even when I don't have a movie in it because I just love it so much. And, mm -hmm. um, but that was really where hatchet started to take off because Tribeca isn't a horror festival. They show a couple horror movies, yeah. but Fright Fest is like the horror festival. So when Hatchet got a great response, uh, like that was sort of like heard around the world mm -hmm. to all the other genre festivals. So um, yeah, but, but Pan's Labyrinth is perfect. I mean, there's so many, there's so many movies, but those are ones that I tend to reach for. Um, and then uh, John Carpenter's Halloween is one of those ones that, I have to watch every few months or yeah. I wilt. <laughs> um, and I got really offended when I saw when the, when the Blu-ray version of hatchet one came out, cause Blu-ray wasn't a thing mm -hmm. when the first one, when the, when hatchet one came out. So a few years later, they're like, we're going to make a Blu-ray now. And the quote that they used on the Blu-ray, which was from, I want to say Gorezone Gore zone magazine in the yeah. UK, maybe but it was the holy grail of slasher films. And I was so offended by that because I'm like, fucking John Carpenter's Halloween is the holy grail of slasher films. They're, how can you say that? And everyone's like, dude, it's a compliment. Just take it. And I'm like, right. no, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm the only person I know who wants to argue about their own reviews. But, um, but obviously, I greatly appreciate whoever said that. Yeah. But John Carpenter's Halloween is the greatest and nothing will ever, ever touch it for slasher films. Ever. Totally agree. It was always my Perfect. favorite. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I guess that's the other thing. Stay a fan. It's easy to forget because, you know, you see so much of how the sausage is made mm -hmm. and you get put through the ringer so many times. Um, so you got to you gotta remember to still love it. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard. Um, but figure that out. Find a way. Don't let yourself get to the point where you're like, I don't even know if I love movies anymore. I found myself saying it for sure. Um, I just did a rant on my own podcast about how movies are dead um, because they've become content. They've become streaming yeah. content. They're thumbnails on your screen, on an app. And after a couple of weeks when it's not new anymore, it's, it's gone. It's, you know, in a list that you need to think of to type in that title, to see it again. But to the average person, it's just about the front pages of those apps. Mm -hmm. What's on the front page of Netflix or whatever. And and they don't have the same reverence for movies. It, it's not a, a ritual anymore. It's And I don't just mean the theatrical experience. I just mean watching a movie in general. Yeah. And I think when you make everything free or next to it, it loses some respect from mm -hmm. its audience. And obviously anyone who's listening to your podcast or who is this into movies will beg to differ with me on that. But, um, but I'm talking about to the average person and those are the ones that matter when you meet about a potential remake with any studio. One of the first things they say, which I used to be offended by, but now I get it is we don't care about the fans and they're like, we have them. They're coming. So, don't sit and tell us what we need to do to make the fans happy. Mm. We already, they already bought a ticket. And if they don't, even if they don't like it, they're buying the Blu-ray cause they need to have all of them. And they'll like, we got them. So tell us how you're going to do this and appeal to people who wouldn't normally go see a insert title here. Movie. Right. Right. Um, and I used to get, I'd seethe over that. What's more important than the fans without the fans. None of this exists. You don't exist. You don't have a fucking job without us. 
And that's the other thing too is, and I've probably lost jobs over that. I still consider myself one of us and not one of them. Right, and, right. Um, I don't know if I'll ever be able to change that. I don't think I want to change that. Yeah. But um, yeah, but, uh, but you do need to think about the bigger audience because they're the ones who make something a hit or not. It isn't just, just the fans. But why can't you do both, huh? Why can't you make a Nightmare on Elm Street remake that the fans can also love? Right. Like, it, it's possible. It could have been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean to take a shot at that one necessarily, but I just like, uh, there's plenty of great remakes, plenty mm-hmm. of them. Plenty and it of takes them. nothing to do that. There's nothing to make it that much better for the fans in the terms of their their, their timelines and budgets and, and getting the right writers. It's just such a small detail in the studio's mind, but I, I don't know why they overlook it as much as they seem to. And you know why it's not that big of a deal? Because all you have to do is respect the source material, yeah. respect the story, and you are respecting the fans. Mm-hmm. You don't need to give them the fan service things of, oh, that character's named... Sheriff Hooper, get it? Because (laughs) also never do that in your script. Every time I read a script where it's like Dr. Carpenter, I throw it out immediately. Um, uh, I'm not saying you can't do little shout outs. I do them for my high school friends. Like I drop their names in it. It's just Mm -hmm. a name. Who cares? But don't, don't, don't do that. Um, uh, Yeah. But if you just respect and show some love for whoever the character is, like if you're doing a Texas Chainsaw remake, like, just show respect to Toby's original film mm-hmm. and the concept and the characters. And you are respecting the fans. That's all they're asking from you. Yeah. You don't, you don't need to also have a poltergeist reference in there somewhere <laughs> that, you know, cool, but they don't care. They don't have to have that. Yeah. Just, just yeah. Respect the movie you're making. And, um, and that's not always easy, man. Cause a lot of times, especially if you're one of those directors who doesn't write their own stuff, you're beholden to what's available and you're just, you got to work and you're trying to get a job and it's hard. It's so hard. And, um, you know, I, I'm very fortunate that I can write and, mm-hmm. uh, that's like probably the thing I'm most grateful for. And probably the thing I'm, I'm best at out of the, the many things I do, but, uh, but yeah, uh, maybe you don't think you're a writer. Maybe that's not what you wanted to be, but everyone thought that until they tried. And, right. And it's not going to be great the first time, and that's okay. But keep writing because if you control your script, it's yours. That's the best chance you're going to have at directing something. Mm-hmm. Because trying to get hired onto somebody else's thing, there's always going to be somebody with better credits than yours, or who's got better connections than you, or whatever it might be. So uh, if you really are serious about this, write. Just keep keep writing and. Um, yeah, that's it's the best advice anyone will give you, right? No matter what, right? That's great. Well, I feel like that's a perfect place to end on, Adam. This was so enjoyable, and uh, I, I, I really hope can't it was. thank you I enough. Hope it was. I'm so sorry that I'm like blah, 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 like a mile a minute. But no, no, it's, it's I love it. It's all great up for a year. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> thank man, you this... for asking me. I really, really appreciate you reaching out. And, of course, and putting me in this. All right, man. Thank you again. Real pleasure meeting you and talking to you. And this was just huge so thank you you're so welcome thank you again all right so so much to digest from that interview so i will do my best to deliver some key takeaways from this conversation with adam green number one flex every opportunity 
This goes out to all those filmmakers out there who are not full-time yet. One of Adam's first jobs was editing videos for local businesses. These are videos that are typically pretty dull and relatively lame, but Adam found an opportunity to use his directorial sensibility to make the videos great instead of shrugging the work off as part of his temporary day job. Instead, he channeled his passion into the work that was right in front of him. And as a result, the ad he edited was extremely popular and allowed Adam to hone his skills in what would have been an otherwise bland opportunity. Regardless of wherever you are in your filmmaking journey, find ways to flex your skills and passions with what you do instead of just shrugging it off. Number two, ignorance is bliss. One of the things that Adam really made an effort to convey is that throughout the course of his directorial journey, he knew very little about filmmaking, but he picked it all up as he moved forward. Regardless of the fact that he didn't know what a feature or a reel was in the beginning, the consistent element of his origin story as a director is that he constantly put one foot in front of the other built momentum, and learned everything by doing. This is huge, as a lot of filmmakers feel intimidated and feel they either need to go to film school or read dozens of books about filmmaking to even get started. Now, the best way to learn is to take consistent action, not by researching or feeling intimidated by your lack of knowledge. You don't have to know everything, or anything, actually, but you do need to get moving. Number three, giving others huge opportunities can be a huge opportunity for you. When Adam was selecting his production designer for Hatchet, he picked a greensman, someone who had never done the job before. But since Adam's movie represented an enormous opportunity for him to excel and show what he was capable of, this guy over-delivered, and as a result, the production value of Hatchet was very high. This is what you want when you're working with low budgets. You want people who aren't in it for the money, but for the opportunity to make something great with you. Your film could be a jumping-off point for someone else's career, so don't always feel the need to crew your movie based on somebody's IMDb credits. Observe their attitudes, your gut feeling about them, and really think about what your movie represents to them in terms of opportunity for their careers. Find people who have as much to prove as you do, and it'll not only save you money and boost your production value, but it'll create this wonderful, adventurous spirit on set. Number four, be cautious of favors. This is a complimentary point to the previous one. What you do not want on set is people who will begrudgingly do you favors and then constantly remind you of how much they usually get paid throughout the course of production. This is very toxic. Don't get me wrong, though. Sometimes it's worth it to reach out to collaborators who are way out of your league, which was the case with both Ryan Spindell on Mortuary Collection and Ryuhei Kitamura with his first film, Versus. But in any case, when selecting people to work with, it's critical to find that spirit of passion instead of people who are just in it for the money. Which brings me to my next point. Number five, create your own sandbox. Let's face it, anyone who's been in the Hollywood system will tell you it's infested with sharks, liars, assholes, and a lot of sociopathic personality types. It just is. But you shouldn't be daunted by this. Instead, you should be vigilant about who you work with. Toxic personalities on set are awful and can ruin your set. Hollywood is a boulevard of broken dreams, so you're likely to come across a lot of people who are very bitter and envious. And if you discover this, replace them ruthlessly and immediately because they not only harm morale, they can actually try to sabotage your movie. Yes, that happens. Multiple directors have mentioned it, and it's very insidious, but very true. So be cautious. 
What Adam does is he hyper curates his production circles and tries to only work with people he knows and trusts or has great chemistry with. As a result, his sets are fun and harmonious, which significantly helps him through the more difficult productions. This is a key lesson, so take note. Number six, this is an extra one. Stop pirating movies. This doesn't apply to everyone, but some of you know who you are. If you like horror movies, support them by not fucking pirating them. Illegally downloading movies is stealing plain and simple. And no, it's not a victimless crime. The true victims aren't just the producers, writers, directors who bust their asses for years to make these movies, but it's us fans who ultimately suffer because there'll be less horror movies because pirating drains money out of the industry. I'm going to go ahead and say it. If you steal horror movies, you can't call yourself a real horror fan. Real fans support the industry. So if this is you, knock that shit off and just pony up the money to watch the movies that you love. Anyway, I don't want to end on a negative note, so I'll say, guys, this is my 80th episode and the end of season two of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. I can't thank you all enough for listening and for your support and for sharing the show with your friends and filmmaking colleagues, and I'm just completely overwhelmed by the support, so seriously, thank you guys so, so much. We're going to take a brief hiatus before returning with season three, but in the meantime, be well, stay safe, thank you for listening, and keep making movies. Keep making movies.